This morning we come to Romans 8. And Romans 8 is just a... You know, I think it's one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. Now, that's hard to say because God inspired the whole book. And how do you say what God said in Romans is, is better than what God said in Leviticus? I, I'm not sure you can do that, and yet there, there are places in the Scripture where God has kind of condensed and, and pulled together the, the teaching in such a way that it's just it's it's rich, you know. You're you're digging, 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 and all of a sudden you get that big gold nugget. And it's like, wow, you know, this is what I was looking for. I'm not the only one that thinks that. One commentator from a hundred or more years ago said that if the whole Bible is a ring, a, a, a beautiful ring, and the Book of Romans is the jewel in the setting. The eighth chapter is the sparkle of the jewel. You know, it's that, it's that focal point. It's what catches your eye. It's just that, that glorious passage of Scripture where it all comes together. Another person said it begins with no condemnation. And it ends with no separation. How can you say it more powerfully than our relationship with God, that it's encapsulated, parentheses, between no condemnation and, and no separation? We are in Jesus Christ forever for His power and His glory. It's an amazing thing. And in Romans 8, uh, we are going to see how to live the victorious Christian life. Now, for whatever reason, I am real conscious lately of God words. And, and when I say that, I don't mean words from God. I mean words that we have attached to God, you know, the church phrases. And sometimes we just, things just kind of come out of our mouths that are... Sometimes I catch myself, I mean, well, almost every week, and I get, I'm getting self-conscious about it. I don't want to get too introspective here, but, you know, we, we, hear, we hear a testimony, which is just a story of what God has done, and we say, Amen, instead of, Yeah! You know, and you say, Why do we say Amen? Well, because it's in the Bible, you know, and they said that, the Jews said that 3,000 years ago, but... You know, so we use these phrases, and we use this phrase, the victorious Christian life. And, you know, what is that? When we talk about the victorious Christian life, what are we talking about? Are we talking about people that run around with a big smiley face all the time? Are we talking, yes, did somebody say yes? <laughs> are, we, are we talking about people that put the bumper stickers on their car? Are we talking about waving flags? I mean, what is the victorious Christian life? Well, let me explain to you what I mean and what, what Romans 8 means. The victorious Christian life is when you get to the end of the day and in the presence of God you feel good about what's happened. You know, you look back over the day and you realize today I didn't flip anybody off in traffic. You know? I didn't have a phone conversation that made me so mad, I slammed down the receiver. I didn't yell at my spouse. 
I didn't beat my kids out of frustration instead of appropriate discipline. You know, it was a good day. It was a good day. I had victory. I'm talking about throughout the day when confronted with the opportunity to be rather base, rather sinful, rather selfish. Those events occurred, and by the grace of God, His power came through me in such a way that I didn't yield to that. And I got to the end of the day and I said, wow, it's been a good day. That's what I mean about the victorious Christian life. Are you winning the battle against yourself? Against your carnal nature? Against the power of sin? Are you winning the battle? And how do we do that? And Romans 8 is the how. Here Paul tells us, having laid this tremendous foundation of who we are in Jesus Christ and what has happened to us, he says, now let's talk about life in the Spirit. Sometime if you want to do this, if you write in your Bible, write in the one you use all the time. If not, uh, find one that you don't mind marking up a little bit and take a colored pencil or something and in seven color over every time the word I occurs. Just kind of highlight it. And then in chapter 8, highlight every time the word spirit occurs. And you'll find in chapter 7, with this horrible chapter of defeat and frustration, the eyes cover the page. But you'll find in chapter 8, where there is power and victory, and success, you'll find that the word spirit dominates the chapter because it is the powerful spirit of God working through us. Now, when we open to chapter 8 and we start writing the first verse, we begin with a therefore. And I want you to know, just for the sake of context, that the therefore that occurs in verse 1 of chapter 8 does not follow right on the heels of the end of 7. But it goes back to chapter 7, verse 6, where Paul says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7 is Paul's personal testimony. Paul says, let me tell you how this looked in my life. And we could all give this testimony because we all have weaknesses. Paul said, my weakness was coveting. I had all the outside cleaned up pretty good. I had the window dressing on out there, you know. But when it came to coveting, that was my Achilles heel. That's where I failed. I wanted what other people had, whether it was material possessions or power, prestige. That was what I wanted. So that was my weakness. And he tells us the story of the battle that he had with covetousness. 
You could tell another story. You could tell a story about greed. You could tell a story about lust. You could tell a story about lying all the time. You could tell a story about other things that are your weaknesses. We tend to be guilty of sin in general, but we also tend to have certain areas where we are especially vulnerable. And you could tell your story in those verses. But Paul's statement about the law in verse 6 is what leads us to chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to have no condemnation? Well, in general terms, he's already explained to us, we're free from the power of the law of sin. We're not under its domination anymore. Not only that, we're free from the effect of sin, which is the power of death. We're not going to die. I mean, admittedly, these bodies are going to quit one day, but we have eternal life. We are not going to die. We're going to live forever in the presence of God. There's no condemnation. We're free from the judgment of the law. We're not ever going to have to face our sin. Aren't you glad for that? You know, we were talking about that in the first hour this morning and talking about the, the judgment for unbelievers is, you know, we're not, people without Christ are not going to stand before God's bar of justice and God's going to say, yes, you're a sinner, you deserve hell. He's, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be, remember the time when you took your brother's toy truck and hit him over the head with it. Remember the first time you said no to your mother. Remember the first time you lied to your father. Remember the time when you were selfish on the playground. And there will be a list. The scripture says every idle word will be accounted for. Every deed. And you know, out there in general... Every once in a while, you might be able to break a traffic law here and there or get away with something, or you might even be able to steal something and not get caught. There may be all kinds of things you get away with here because people don't see you, but God is always present. He's always there. Everything gets noted. And those without Jesus Christ will stand before God as he reads the list. And all the sins will be there. And I'm so glad that my list is not going to be read because it is under the blood of Jesus Christ and it is covered and cast aside and hidden as far as east from west, behind the back of God, out of mind, out of sight, out of my life. I will never face my sin. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm released from the history there's nothing to condemn me. What, what is condemnation? It, it, it's, it's when you know you haven't done what you ought to do. There's condemnation. You know, it can come from a variety of ways. I, I was condemned this morning by a package of air conditioning filters. Say, so how can that happen? Well, I was supposed to put one of them in the air conditioning and heating system last night, and I forgot. I forgot. 
And when I got up this morning there, they sat, the package, unopened in the doorway. And I remembered, and they condemned me. I had that feeling. I didn't measure up. I didn't live up. That's condemnation. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. He has paid the price. He's released me. He has cleansed me. I'm free. That means I can talk to God without hanging my head in shame. I can come to Him for help because He has wiped the slate clean. Paul says we, 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 end, we, we enter into life in the Spirit with the awareness that in the presence of God, we are without condemnation. We are free in Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins to explain to us how to live in the Spirit. And the very first thing that he says is, we have to understand the principles of the law. We've been over this before, but I repeat it just like Paul repeats it here, because we need to get it. And I want to tell you, understanding what Paul is about to explain to us is the toughest thing to get for a Christian. This concept that I cannot, but God can. Because we keep thinking we can. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8, there are three different kinds of law. And the word law itself is used in two different ways. I want to read verses 2 and 3 and then we'll explain that. For, what, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, as I said, the word law is used here in three different ways, three different kinds of law, and the word is used in two different ways or two different definitions. One way to use the word law is to use it as a principle or a power. Okay? A law can be a principle or a power, like gravity. We talk about the law of gravity. Now, the law of gravity is not like a traffic law. A traffic law is made by human beings. For one thing, we make them up, and uh, we, we decide how best to control the flow of traffic and prevent accidents. And so we put stop signs and we paint lines on the road, and people are supposed to stay between the lines and stop at the signs and stop at the lights. Those are traffic laws. But, you know, you can break a traffic law, and if no one's gotten your way and no police officer saw you, you, you can escape without consequence. It's a human law. It's a standard that describes how behavior should be, but it, it, it's not a law like gravity. Gravity is a law that is a power that exists no matter what you do. No one ever knocks their coffee over on the table and it spills up. That will never, ever happen. You will never drop something that falls to the wall. It will always fall to the floor. 
Gravity is always in effect. It's always there. There's nothing you can do to stop it. The law of gravity is a power that operates regardless of your behavior. There are other laws, like the laws of physics. For example, I'm going to talk about aerodynamics this morning as a, as a law. There are laws like aerodynamics that describe that if you create a, a piece of metal, if you work it in such a way with a, a rounded leading edge and a little bit of a, a U-shape in the bottom and a taper toward the back and you put some power behind it, it will create lift as it goes through the air and you can fly, at least for a while, defeating the law of gravity. Well, you haven't really defeated it. You've just overcome it for a period of time. That's a principle that operates called aerodynamics. And as long as there's power behind the wing, and it even works for gliders because, strangely enough, gravity's the power there. It even works on gliders, but as long as there's power behind the wings, it will create lift and temporarily overcome the law of gravity. But it operates whether you do or not. It's always there. But the other kind of law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, all the embellishments of those commandments in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of the things that God says throughout the Scripture, the laws of men, the, the criminal codes, the traffic laws, all of those laws are standards. They describe behavior. In God's case, they describe His character. And they tell us what He is like, and therefore what we should be like. But those laws have no power. You see, gravity does have power. There's a pull. And what goes up must come down. It will always be that way. But God's law has no power. And stay with me, because some of you may be thinking I'm being heretical right now, but I'm, the Scripture says it. God's law has no power. It describes behavior, but it has no power. So it cannot help you. It can't do anything for you except tell you what the standard is. And when you fall short, the law condemns you, but it can't help you get back up again. And so Paul uses law in these verses two different ways to apply to three different things. What's the first thing? He says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Both of those are the concept of power that's in operation. And if we can use the analogy, I've used it before, you may be tired of it, but hang in there. Maybe I'll switch to a trumpet next time. But hang with me. The law of sin and death is like gravity. It is a power that operates in our lives. We will always fall down. We will never fall up. We will always fall down in failure. The, the law of sin and death 
is that principle operating in our lives through the power of sin that continually pulls us downward. And we will not be able to keep the standard of God because of the law of sin. But Paul says, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. This means that I have a new law operating in my life, a new principle, power, a new kind of energy that gives me the capacity to overcome gravity. And that power is life in Christ Jesus. I really want you to get the difference between the Spirit and the life, because when we talk about living by the Spirit, this is not some kind of seance sort of thing. You know, I'm going to get in the Spirit. And, you know, we kind of conjure this thing. This is not that. It is the Holy Spirit who brings to us the life of Jesus Christ. He is God the Spirit bringing to us the life of Christ. Jesus said, the same Spirit that has been in me will be in you. The power that I have had, the same power you will have because my life will be in your life by my Spirit. So the law is the life in Christ Jesus that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. It is the life of Christ that comes to us and enables us to defeat, to overcome the law of gravity, in my analogy, sin and death, which pulls us down. Left to ourselves, we will always fall. Given the power of Jesus Christ in my life, I can fly. Now, the practical application of that, friends, is, you know, I'm talking about real life here. This is rubber meets the road kind of stuff. I'm not talking about some mental sort of thing that's going on in your head. I'm talking about real temptation in the real world. Left to yourself, you will fail. But in Jesus Christ, you can succeed. And by success, I mean when the temptation comes, you don't have to give in. You can move through the period of time. You can move through the, the temptation, the pull, the trial, without sinning. Because God's power is at work in you. If sinning is falling, <laughs> you can fly in Jesus. Now, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was, I was meditating on this passage, people have a lot of problems with the church. I'm talking about people out there in general. They have problems with the church. Some people don't go. Some people go and don't like it. Some people go and pretend like they like it, but they really don't. Some people don't know why they go. 
there's all kind of ambivalence and, and frustration among the general population with the church and with religion. And I think one of the reasons is this. So much of the church, even the Christian church, but this is true of all religions, but unfortunately it's true of the Christian church as well. We have set up a system, and I want you to just go with me here in your imagination. We have set up a system that's kind of like this. Imagine a five-year-old who has a very demanding father who has high expectations. Okay, I won't go there, Todd, but just, just stay with me and imagine this. Okay? And, and, here's, and this father one day decides that he is going to teach his son how to fly. This five-year-old. And so here's how he does it. He gets out this paddle. And he takes his son out the front door onto the, the porch, the steps. And he says, now I want you to run off of this porch and I want you to fly. And every time you fall, I'm going to paddle you. And so the trial begins. You know, and the little kid takes a running start and he jumps and he lands in the dirt. And his dad spanks him. Just try it again. And he runs and he jumps, he lands in the dirt, and the dad spanks him. He says, try it again. Are, are you with me? Can you see that? Can you see the frustration? Most people don't do it that blatantly, but we're doing the same thing. And most people have the image of God that's the father with the paddle. And they see church and religion as the challenge to jump off the porch and fly. And, and what they, they live under the expectation that I'm never going to be able to fly because stupid people, can't you understand? I can't fly. But they see that God has this paddle, and if they don't keep trying, they're going to keep getting beat. But they get beat anyway. Because they keep failing. And that always leads to one of a few things. You can take your choice. What would you do if you were the five-year-old? By the way, the answer to the question will tell me a lot about your temperament, so don't out answer out loud. Some of you would just give up and cower in the corner in fear waiting for the next spanking, but you're tired of jumping off the porch. Why try? I am never going to be able to do this, and it's just going to cause... I'm just going to sit here. Some of you will do that. Some of you will jump off the porch and keep running. <laughs> I'm not coming back again. What am I? I'm not stupid. You know, I'm not saying the people cowering in fear are stupid. They just have a different temperament. But some are going to keep, they're going to keep running. There's where a lot of people are. Some innovative soul is going to go find a box somewhere, a crate or something, and put it about five feet out from the porch. And they're going to run and jump and land on the crate. They're going to say, look, Dad, I flew to the crate. Okay, and then they're going to run around finding boxes for everyone. You know those people too. But they can't get past the box. 
That whole thing is destined to fail. Why? Because people can't fly. I'm not trying to be silly here. I want you to get it. People can't fly. And people can't be godly either. On their own. They cannot. Part of, the, part of the problem here, you know why people can't fly? Thank you. They don't have any wings. They have arms and legs. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden could not fly. They had no wings. They couldn't fly either. We weren't made to fly. But somehow we've gotten in our minds that when I become a Christian, now I can fly. Now I can keep the law. God forgave my past. He's cleaned me up. He's regenerated me. I ought to be able to fly now. I ought to be able to do this thing. You can't. You can't do it because you weren't designed to do it. You can't do it because Adam and Eve couldn't do it even before their sin. They sinned. Did you know that the only thing Adam and Eve could do on their own was sin? That's all they could do by themselves was sin. That's all they were capable of. Everything else they needed God for. And they had him in the cool of the day, his presence throughout the day, his spirit living within them, every moment of their lives bathed and saturated with the presence of God. The only thing Adam and Eve could do without him was sin. And friends, the only thing we can do without God is sin. We can never be righteous. You remember the, remember the Superman movie? Where the the girl gets on his back. Who was that? Okay. Well, I know it was Lois Lane. But I mean, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll just stick with Lois Lane. <laughs> you know, she she climbs on, and and they off they go. And you remember the movie? How that nice dreamscape kind of scene. The music is great, and Superman's flying through the air, and she's kind of she's just hanging on there, just kind of watching everything. You know. That's basically what God says to us. He says, you know what? You can never do this by yourself, but Jesus Christ can fly. He can fly. He can soar. He can swoop and dart and dash, and and he will never fall, and he will never fail. And climb on. Let's go for a ride. You want to fly? Climb on the back of Jesus. Rest in him. And he will take you for the ride. What the law could not do, weak as it was through me, my flesh, God did. And Jesus Christ, in the law of the life, of the spirit of life in Christ, has enabled me to overcome the law of sin and death. I'm not talking about some kind of spiritualism here where the rules don't apply anymore and you can just do what you want to do. I'm talking about a kind of spiritual quality of life here that the standards are there, the character of God is there, and Jesus says, come with me and I will make you like that. 
You can't do this on your own. Paul says the weakness of our flesh is the problem. We've got to get it. We weren't designed by ourselves to live in triumph over sin. We do not have that capacity. And, and many times we come to God and we ask Him for things that He cannot answer because we're asking Him to make us a bird. And we're not birds. That's our pro- We come to God and we basically want Him to make us a bird. When He says, I want you to climb on my back and go for a ride. We say, I don't want to do that. I want to fly myself. I want to do my own thing. We don't even recognize sin in the midst of our desire for righteousness. Because the problem with, the, you know, the essence of sin is not being a liar and a thief. The essence of sin is being self-sufficient, independent. I can do it well, but not even that, though, Todd, because in our humanity, with the Spirit of God, God enables us to be so much different by His power. But on our own, we're asking for something that God can't give us. We pray prayers like, fix me, make me better, Repair my old, broken, sinful nature. God says the only remedy for your sin nature is to put it on the cross. I can't fix it. It's broken beyond repair. All I can do is put it on the cross with Jesus and nail it there to be crucified. You want to be free from the old nature? I can't repair it. I'm going to put it to death. That's the first thing. The second thing is we're always asking God to help us. Lord, help me be patient. You know that, that person in your life that just drives you nuts? You know, they just wear you out. You have, you have someone like that? Every time they call, say, here we go again. You know, and, and do you find yourself saying, God, help me be patient, help me be patient, help me be patient. God can't help you be patient. You know why? You don't have any patience. Help me means, okay, i got something here, and, and if you'll just give me an extra hand, together we can kind of lift this thing up. But you don't have any. You may think you do, because you, you you've got other areas. If, as long as there's no line, you're the most patient person in the supermarket. I'm happy as a lark. Man, i got no problems today. Why? Because there's no line. That doesn't mean you're patient. It just means nothing got in your way. Patience is not something you intrinsically have. Or maybe you have patience, but you're missing something else. But we're always coming to God saying, help me with this. And God says, I don't want to help you. I just want you to climb on and ride. I have patience. I have patience. I have kindness. I'm gentle. I have love. I have power. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, temperance, meekness. Against this kind of thing, there is no law. This is, this is who the Spirit is. So just ride with me. But, you, but we come and say, God, help me. 
like we're colleagues. You know, God, I want to be your buddy. Let's, let's do this together. If you'll give me a little help, I know I can pull it off. And God says, I don't want to be your colleague. I want, you're, you're my container. I want to live in you. I don't want to come alongside you and kind of bolster you up. I want to live in you. I want to be your power. I want to be your patience. I want to be your kindness. Because he does it so well. I want to be your life. So when we ask God to help us, we're asking for something that he can't do. I mean, we're asking him to make us a bird. When we're not. We need to come and say, God, do this for me. Live your life through me today. That person rings the telephone. You see it in the caller ID. God, I need you to answer the phone. I'll pick it up, but I need you to talk. Because I will mess it up. God, I need you to live through me. I need you to be patient through me. We need to recognize that the best religious system in the world whether it's God's or ours, fails at the weakness of our flesh. Because we are not designed to be righteous on our own. And furthermore, when we, in this present time period, after the fall of Adam, infected with a sin nature, in this time frame, if we turn to ourselves to find the resources to do it for God. We are not only going to fail, but we're going to find that the law stirs up rebellion. And you get the feeling inside of you like that little five-year-old on the front porch Dad's there with the paddle, and that's the feeling you have. Can you put yourself in that little kid's heart? Can you feel that? Can you feel that? That's where we are. God's going to beat me, and I'm going to mess up. It's no wonder people get tired of religion. I don't blame them. There's no life there. We cannot design a system that will make us godly we will never be able to fly. And I don't care how many boxes you come up with, and how many, you can put boxes all the way down the neighborhood and jump from one to the other, you're still not flying. You're just playing a game. You're pretending. God wants to do in and through us what we have no power to do. Our flesh is weak, but he is powerful. Whatever image sticks with you, I have to stop there this morning. Next week we're going to pick up with the last half of verse 3 and verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And while that's where the door opens on the rest of the chapter, here's what Spirit-filled living looks like. And we're going there next week. But this morning, the thing I want to leave you with, pick any analogy you want, pick any illustration, you're a trumpet in the case, whatever works for you. Understand, you cannot live the Christian life. And you know what? Can I tell you this? 
God is not angry with you because you can't. He's not an idiot standing there with a paddle expecting you to do something you weren't made to do. God is not angry with you because you can't. He knows you can't. God loves you and he's waiting for you to know you can't. So that you will turn to him and say, you know what? Instead of standing here on the porch going through this this silly exercise, let's go to the top of the Sears Tower, and I want to climb one, and let's go fly. Let's soar, because you can, and I can ride. That's the Sabbath rest of God. When he's doing the work, and I'm enjoying the view. Father, I pray this morning you really help us understand it, Maybe silly illustrations, maybe corny stuff, but Lord, we need windows to see the truth. Help us to realize, help us to realize, we, this, we need help here. Help us to realize the truth, that we might embrace it by faith. We can't, but you can. You're not consigning us to a life of failure where we can sit in the mud with some silly expression of bliss on our face. Like, oh gee, I'm a sinner, but so what? God loves me anyway. And you're not expecting us to do what we have no power to do. You're saying you can live like Christ in the power of Christ if you will rest in Him. To know, Lord, that You're not angry with us, You're not not tearing Your hair out over our constant foibles. You're lovingly, patiently, graciously waiting for us to get it so we can come abide in Christ. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.